we're seeing the value of legacy media players because legacy in many cases, and I think certainly in our case, means trust, and trust is valuable and rare. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Media Voices. If you've never listened to us before, we take a look at everything that's going on in the media world over the past week and condense it down to one or two main stories that are the most important for you. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And that extract you just heard is from my interview with Edward Feldenstahl, Editor-in-Chief and CEO at Time Magazine. And as you may have seen, Time was 100 years old last week. I took the chance to speak to Edward about how the publication made it to its centenary. We spoke about tradition of innovation at time, trust, and how legacy is not a bad word in magazines. Another important word is trust. (laughs) And this week we're doing a sort of a proxy look at how trust in the media has evolved over the past couple of days in the UK after... (laughs) <laughs> after some revelations around um, the Telegraph, Isabel Oakshot, and uh, Matt Hancock. Now, Esther, you want to put this in a little bit of context to people who, <laughs> your face, <laughs> who I don't, don't live in the UK. <laughs> well, you feel like we should. Yeah, it would be kind of weird not to talk about it. So, um, Matt Hancock, how do we describe Matt Hancock? <laughs> Absolute hey, so- So he was the health secretary for a lot of the pandemic. So he did have to step down because he went on I'm a Celebrity. Um, no, and- no, no. He had to step down before that. He was caught canoodling. canoodling. I knew he didn't you were going to didn't- say canoodling. <laughs> so he's, <laughs> he's, a, cur- he's a current MP. <gasps> I thought you were going to say something else there. <laughs> So he last year wrote, he, he asked Isabel Oakshot to uh, write a book. Um, it was a sort of semi-autobiography that she, that she wrote for him. And as as part of the material for that, it was just supposed to rehabilitate his image. He, he gave her all of his WhatsApp communications to do with the pandemic. So it was about 100,000 messages. <laughs> um, so she she wrote the book that was published late last year. Um, if you haven't heard of it, that's not a surprise, nor nor would we. Um, you, can it, you can pick it up for about 50 pence and it works. One of many yeah. books written by or about Tory MPs over the past couple of years that have just come and gone and vanished and just seem to be purely there to keep people in their orbit employed as ghostwriters. Pre, <laughs> pre these leaks, it had sold about 4,000 copies. Oh, um, <laughs> really? Yeah. So if you don't know who Isabella Oakshot is, um, I didn't realize she was behind a lot of this stuff until all this has come out. Um, so she's a pro-Brexit political journalist. She's worked at places like the Sunday Times, Daily Mail. So she was one of the ones that worked on David Cameron's biography that featured the dead pig head accusation, which I'm she's, just going to leave that. She's a class act, isn't she really? She's a <laughs> um, proper class act. She wrote um, Bad Boys of Brexit on behalf of Aaron Banks. <laughs> Which was his account of the EU referendum. She then leaked some of his emails and texts, admitting he'd far, he'd had far more dealings with the Russian officials than he'd admitted. So that's we're going to start to see a pattern She's got with the leaks. Um, she then also leaked a series uh, in a series of articles she wrote. She leaked some communications. US, uh, the UK ambassador to the US had had uh, Sir Kim Darroch, uh, where he described the Trump presidency as inept and utterly dysfunctional. He was forced to resign over that a couple of years ago. Um, And Matt Hancock decided that she would be the perfect person to trust. (laughs) 
<laughs> with 100,000 WhatsApp messages <laughs> about an incredibly sensitive time. So were we at all but, surprised when she decided she was going to publish all of these WhatsApp messages? No. <laughs> yeah, we weren't. Apparently Matt Hancock was. Now, to get back to the business of media and kind of the raising detriment of media voices, what has been the fallout from this? Because I have seen such a wide variety of responses. People have lauded her. People have yeah. said, actually, there is a public interest case for having leaked these. People have gone, actually, this is terrible, awful behaviour for a journalist or you know, nominal journalist to burn a source so thoroughly. From, I suppose, the Telegraph's point of view, there's a question of, you know, to what extent are they now culpable for withholding information? Because obviously it was the Telegraph which she went to with this, despite working for other news outlets. So yeah. she so she co-anchors Talk TV and she also writes for The Sun as part of this, um, it's a sort of freelance retainer deal. So she so, isn't technically under any. She wasn't technically under any obligation to go to them uh, first. But my goodness me, it, uh, like that. Walking in the <laughs> management, office the next I think, day. is furious. Yeah. So the question we have here is: it's almost like an alien versus predator situation, <laughs> where we're stuck in the middle between these two opposing forces. The difference, of course, is that aliens and predators are quite cool, and these people are just the most grey, boring, worst individuals. They just happen to be powerful also, in terms have of information dissemination. They have ethics in a way that these guys <laughs> Do we think this is going to move the needle on public trust in the media? Because we write about this all the time. In the wrong direction, yeah. Well, is it? So do you think that this is now going to have a negative impact on how people believe, you know, how think of the pe- people think of the press? I think how you approach this story properly depends on where you start. If you start on the left, mm. you're thinking, oh my God. These people are at it again. You can't trust any of them. And it just proves that the UK press is just a cesspit. I think if you're on the right, you maybe see it as, you maybe see her as a a kind of freedom fighter. A Robin Hood figure. Yeah, standing up for public. I can't even think. Of I, I, I don't even know if it's left and right though, because it's the kind of the lockdown. The opinions on lockdown really vary across the spectrum, mm-hmm. and it seems to be like if you were, if you were pro lockdown, then this is it, like a lot of this is really quite horrendous, and if you if you're anti lockdown, this is then she, yeah, she's the freedom fighter no. for this. Okay, so one of the things that I think has come out, which is relevant to this discussion, is the series of text messages between Matt Hancock and then editor of the Evening Standard, George Osborne. Uh, Worky, if you want to, if you want to refer to him by his nickname there, because he was less used than a work experience person. Now, the <laughs> Matt Hancock wants to wanted to hit his target for testing, and basically said to George Osborne, "Can you give me a hand?" And Osborne came back and said, "Absolutely, don't worry about this." Now he didn't give him the splash, but it raised this spectre of this revolving door between government and editors at major papers in the UK. So again, I do think that if you're looking for confirmation that this is bad for trust in the press, you're going to find it there. But at the same time, I've seen people come to Oakshot's defence and say, well, actually, no, this is exactly what journalists should be doing. This is holding power to account. Julia Hartley Brewer. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I hate everybody involved in the story with the, the fury of a thousand sons. But we have to admit that there is some nuance to this story. And what I'm going to ask the two of you now is, do we think there's going to be any fallout for this for the press, or is it purely going to be for the people involved, say, Hancock? Yeah, no fallout for the press whatsoever. Mm. I think we might look back in a couple of months at how a lot of this has come out, because it's not... I, I think everybody's so desperate to find sort of the heroes and villains in this, right? I think it's 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 much, much, much more complicated than that. And... The decisions the government made at the time, whether you agree with them or not, were 
complicated and it's it's <laughs> the communications that come out are not great i was going to say that's not the point the, everyone well everyone with a brain accepts that they were complicated decisions it's the infighting and the backstabbing and but the I, I, I think that's that's being overshadowed and a lot of what's coming out now is almost undermining the decisions that they made at the time even though it shouldn't be like you know we couldn't realistically have lockdowns raised until we'd got the vaccine um but the way that they've discussed some of those christmas restrictions and a lot of things going on and you know oh, i want to prioritize the economy above people like old people because they're just as likely to die falling down the stairs like there's so much that's come out on both sides of anti or pro lockdown that has mm. just really shed quite an ugly light on the decisions that were made during that time and i, I think that's where like, the, like the, the Telegraph is anti-lockdown. That they are, they are, ch they are picking and choosing the messages they publish, and that that is quite important. We were talking um, about this ahead of recording. Yeah, we were saying they have a responsibility now yeah. to make sure that if they if they are committed to transparency, as they have said around this, then they need to release everything and put it in context. Oh, Peter, <laughs> committed to transparency? You shitting me? I'm trying to play devil's advocate. <laughs> like, with, okay, but, but this is her. So, so also, I think for people that don't know, um, we are. There's a big invest, uh, public inquiry going on into this, where, and all the messages were handed over to the public inquiry prior to Isabella Oakeshott choosing to publish them. She published them because she didn't believe the public inquiry would be quick enough. Um, oh, and bollocks. <laughs> bollocks, she did. I, well, that, that's what she, she said. Published she published them because she knew she'd get in front of the front page of the Telegraph and on the TV and all sorts. And make that's what she money. said. Oh, so why did she hold on to them for so long? Why hold on to them for well, so she, long? Why do it now? Peter, I, I'm agreeing with you that she has form for this kind of stuff. Um, the, and the, the, other, the other thing in terms of um, in terms of press, uh, so you were mentioning about George Osborne, who um, was... Worky. Yeah. So Emily Sheffield, who is, I think she's the current editor of the Evening no. Standard. Oh, she's no, no. Not there, no. Was. No, she's, oh, she's she was yeah. former. She was former editor. Yeah. So she was, she, was, um, she was certainly quite high up there at the time. She, she tweeted about this when the, the messages came out about um, Matt Hancock wanting to pressure George Osborne into um, putting stuff on the front pages. And she said... I just want to gently point out that Osborne was not editor on November 2020, the date of these particular WhatsApp. He had no editorial control over the newspaper at that point. Okay. He was editor-in-chief, an advisory role and columnist. Oh, great defence. Great defence, Emily. Then why did Hancock text him and why did he say yes? But even if that's true, so even if that is a, is a valid point, Christopher... Mm. What's her relationship with a certain person? Well, now I believe... Now I believe that she is the sister-in-law of ex-Prime uh, Minister David Cameron. Interesting. And my, my point there is actually more around the public perception of job titles. I'd have said editor-in-chief had editorial control over a newspaper, and I work in the industry, so I, I, does there need to be some clarification there? Um, and the other thing, I, I think a lot of people within gotcha. the industry assume that everybody outside the industry knows what public interest is or why you would break an NDA over it and what an NDA is. Mm. Um, and I've I, the sort of conversation with sort of quote normal people, or certainly people I've chatted to about this that aren't industry, is that they're a bit like, well, if she'd promised, like if she'd signed a legal document saying she wouldn't disclose it, why did she? Mm. And it just seems to paint this whole picture of like you can't trust journalists. Like what, what are we like the fourth least trusted professional, something just yeah. above politicians. Well, this, this isn't this, doing anything to reinforce that. Absolutely not. And this has come to light as well with, for instance, lately things like the Nicola Bully story, where the press behaved in a in a way that was. It's some some titles behaved abominably, and you can defend death knocks, you can defend all this all you like, but the reality is that at the moment, with trust being so low, you have to be above board in every single way. You have to be totally watertight. It's the Caesar's wife situation 
Yeah, but that's why I say there'll be no fallout because for the public, that's just business as usual. Mm. That's depressing. We're already there. Mm. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah, sometimes rock bottom is, you know, at least you're building on rock. Yeah, exactly. Foundations are good. <laughs> I think the the you know, part of the issue with this is the adversarial nature of the UK press in that mm. sense. And okay, it's it's predominantly right leaning. And they're just gonna go at each other for this. So that adversarial approach, there's no there's no one there's no Ethics code. I mean, there is an ethics code, but no one seems to be paying much attention to it. Uh, and I just think people have got to be looking in from the outside, thinking, "What is going on?" And it's the same thing with the government. Well, they're all worried about their careers. What well, see, to this, me, what comes out of this is they're all just self-seeking bastards. I think that the the only conclusion we can draw here is that a we didn't want to talk about this to begin with, <laughs> but then b there is so much still to be done to rebuild that trust in the media and stuff like this, whether it is, if, if it devolves to Esther's point into a kind of he said, she said situation, then we're all getting tarred with the same brush. And that's not good for anybody. What was the what was the equivalent recently in the US where um, I think it was somebody on Fox got access to a whole oh, load it of... Was, uh, um, it was Fox publicly was sort of supporting the election fraud claims, but in private they had seen mm. I don't know, was it right. wasn't it was it the Dominion stuff? It was the, the see, this is different. <laughs> this is a different thing than what I was talking about. That's a completely separate trust crisis. You're then talking about this idea that all the information that's come out about the Dominion voting scandal was in fact the higher ups at Fox, including uh, Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, knew that that was all bullshit, but they instructed their anchors to continue promoting yeah. that because they didn't That's want to true. lose viewers to Newsmax to all these different places. Yeah, and I think I think just to just to kind of finish off with illustrating a point about this, um there's there's been some stuff just over the weekend about Matt Hancock saying that he was going to he was ready to deploy the new variant over Christmas in the run up to Christmas 2020. Um, which is when we were entering like lockdown three. That's just before my, my daughter was born. There was medically, scientifically, there was another variant going around and the language he used has just been taken with by the conspiracy theorists and run with and, and mm-hmm. news outlets don't have a responsibility to take what he's saying and, and remind people that there was another variant circulating and that just because the government are verbalising it in a way that <laughs> really feeds the conspiracy theories doesn't negate the fact that there was scientifically a new variant coming up. If you are the Telegraph and you just turned on this fire hose to the extent they have and are just blasting it out there, that responsibility for who gets soaked is on you. You have to provide it in context yeah. and, and that's and I mean, responsibility as a paper. Goodness knows what else we've got to come out because, you know, you're not going to start with the best stuff, are you? And we're, we're like, what, three, four days into this. God. So. <laughs> uh. Now on to the news in brief. And I, I am aware that the tonal shift here is going to be incredibly jarring. But the best piece I read this week, and one that neither of my co-hosts read, I believe, because they're dork-ass losers who hate fun, uh, is all about video game journalism. And so for Nyman Lab, Luke Winkie has posed the question, given that gaming is the most lucrative entertainment medium in the world, why are we consistently seeing job cuts in games journalism? So if you think back over the past couple of years, it has consistently been game-focused sites, game-focused publications that have borne the brunt of a lot of job cuts. But it's effectively a microcosm, I think, of what we've seen elsewhere, which is that as games and gaming influencers, as game developers and publishers get access to audiences directly, the need for gaming magazines 
as gatekeepers as they once were has ended. There is absolutely still space for games journalism. It just requires you to do it in a different way. This is, I suppose, this could be the bellwether for how this we think what, about magazines um, in the future. This is what uh, that uh, Josh Nino was talking about, this, the Dexerto co-founder a couple of weeks ago too, wasn't he? Because he was mm-hmm. basically saying like they they didn't want to take the traditional approach and they actually work with a lot of the kind of gaming influencers and they almost become the fans. Well, here's a question then. Yes. How does this relate back to something like movie magazines, which had this, or even music, which had the same sort of review job? Mm-hmm. Do games magazines not just need to change to be the way the music and movie magazines change? Josh is talking about building a community around that. And I think Empire in particular has done a really good job about making it about your fraternity of film fans. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the past, the games journalists were acting very much as gatekeepers. And in game gaming as well, there is still, as a result of that, this antipathy towards game journalists. You know, the meme is games journalists cannot play games. They are bad at games because they are first and foremost journalists and not gamers that that's really conversation funny i just because i met mark alka from um from single track the mountain bike magazine uh, at the publishing show this week and he was saying about how mountain bike journalists used to get a lot of shit from the mountain bikers because they weren't good enough (laughs) (laughs) okay so i don't know how many minutes we are into this podcast but we haven't mentioned ai yet 30 almost exactly 30 minutes there's a headline this week in the guardian on wednesday um, German publisher Axel Springer says journalists could be replaced by AI. Fuck me. Now, Peter, is that what the uh, is that what Axel Springer said? I don't think it was. <laughs> I, so, the, so basically, Matthias Dopfner, uh, the CEO from Axel Springer, he sent an internal memo that said that yes, journalists are at risk of being replaced by artificial intelligence systems like Chat. GPT, but he moved that very quickly onto admin roles, mm. talking about you know exactly what we know AI does well: processing shitloads of data, going through stuff that no human in the right mind wants to go through anyway. And it, and the, the the real headline in the story was that he said, you know, the guy who's responsible for that headline, but if you take it at face value. What Matthias Dopner said was, only those who create the best original content will survive. And he's 150 billion percent right on that. But that headline is is like, oh God, the robots are coming. It's like, guys, (laughs) get a clue. We know that what bleeds leads, but Jesus wept. Uh, talking of AI, mine's, mine's about AI too, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it's very similar, actually. Uh, well, it's certainly related. Um, so Wired has published a piece this week um, setting out guidelines for how they will and won't use generative AI tools. Um, they've sort of done a, a long post explaining that they're not going to publish stories with text generated by AI because they think that the current tools are prone to errors and bias. Mm-hmm. Um uh, not not unlike humans, uh, but all often produce dull and original writing. Uh, that's but they, true. That's <laughs> yeah, a better that point, true. actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, they are exploring AI to suggest headlines and story ideas and as an analytical tool. <laughs> yeah, I'm not um, buying that, though, because that's Guardian. <laughs> the headline could have been written by AI. <laughs> like I said, this is all connected this week. Um, so all the details aside, I did actually think that the the way that Wired had published this piece, um, it was actually a really good example of the sort of transparency I think other publishers should be considering if they're looking at AI reporting or generative AI at all. Um, because it was a really good way of sort of saying to the audience, like, look, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is, and, and it was also a bit of an idiot's guide. It, it sort of explains a lot of the context and the jargon, like what is some of this stuff? What is generative AI? 
I don't want to say idiot friendly, but definitely <laughs> idiot friendly. Right, I'll read it then. Excellent. Uh, get, it, get it bookmarked. So we spoke a lot about trust this week, and in my conversation with Edward Felsenstahl, it was front and center of the editor in chief and CEO at Times reason for why his magazine has made it to a hundred years old. We spoke about the secret sauce that got the publication to its centenary when so many other magazines have fallen by the wayside. We spoke about innovation and transformation versus trust and legacy. But first, I asked Edward what it felt like to be in charge of a hundred-year-old publishing brand. It's pretty special. And I think what's been incredible to me, so I've been here just about 10 years, so a tenth of our history. Um, and, you know, as we've hired people, as I talk to our consumers and customers around the world, everybody feels some connection to this this brand, you know, and so many people have a time story. There's There's some point in their life or their family history or you know where they they have a, a connection a real connection with with the brand and everywhere you go in the world people know it and it means something to them and that's special to all of us who work here i think it's a big part of what makes our work as a brand and as a team possible and a big part of why we've made it to a hundred I think that's the other thing is that that there is that, that again, there's not many brands that are 100 years old, but there's actually not many brands that are quite so well known in publishing. You know, I can maybe think of half a dozen. Yeah, I think what's unusual about time is, you know, we're not coastal in the US We're we have audience really all across the country and across ideological lines which is increasingly unusual. And then we're also, we're, we're truly global. And there aren't many publications, as you say, that are that, are that well-known and, and that are truly global in a way that, that this one is. So, you know, we'll, we'll interview, you know, I think about even the world leaders we've, we've interviewed in the last four years. And, you know, it's, it's, um, Olaf Scholz and it's Macron, but also Biden and and Harris and Trump and you know we're in Ukraine one day and in the Philippines another. So what's the secret? What what's allowed Time to become that global brand uh, and, and and reach a hundred years old? Well, I, I think the main uh, secret is trust, which is so valuable and, and, and increasingly rare uh, in, in our world. We've got a hundred years of it that nobody can, can replicate. There was a, a period in our business, the media business, where the word legacy, as in legacy media, almost became a bad word. And, and everybody, we all in a way thought the future, these you know digital startups that um, uh, were just getting off the ground you know, 10, 15 years ago. I helped start one of them, The Daily Beast, before I came here. And I think what part of what we've seen in recent years is that legacy is not a bad word. It's a good word. <laughs> it's a positive. And of course, there's plenty of room for exciting, innovative, new players. 
uh, time emerged as an innovator in 1923. It was the upstart of its of its day, and and there, as I say, plenty of room for that. But I think we're seeing the value of legacy media players because legacy, in many cases, and I think certainly in our case, means trust, and trust is valuable and rare. So I think that's the, and I think one of the things that's really special about time and and editing time is that we see that that trust extends not just around what to know, around what's happening in the world, but also around what to do. And, you know, people are looking for, we see this in our audience patterns, guidance, uh, guidance around events and global news, but but also guidance about uh, should I take Paxlovid when I get COVID, <laughs> and um, you know how do I take care of my um, student loans, and um, you know really in some of the most personal health has become as big a topic as we have because we have this trust and people in a time of where there's so much health information out there. Nobody really quite knows who to turn to. The name time means something to people. So that's, I think, a big part of the sauce, the special sauce. Do you think that idea of actionable information is going to become more and more important? I absolutely do. And some of that's the brand um, that that prompts people to be willing to take action on what they learn from time, the guidance they receive from time. But of course, some of that is our team. And we have, again, just to stay on health for a moment, uh, we have some extraordinarily experienced writers who've been covering this space for decades, know it as well as anybody in the field. And so it's, it's, that's, real, that's really valuable. If I think on it, you've been there since, what, 2013? Yes. Even before Mark Benioff took over or bought the title, you must have seen some huge changes at time. Absolutely. I think at some level, you know, change is a tradition at time. As I said, it, it, it was the innovator in the space when it was founded. Time won an Oscar for uh, short films it did called The March of Time in the 30s. HBO grew out of Time Inc. There's been, you know, tremendous innovation in how we connect with audiences throughout. And that was obviously happening. Uh, it's accelerated very much mm. with our new owners, mm. our current owners, because they are such incredible supporters and believers in the brand and what it can do. And and there was a period when in our corporate ownership, we were cutting our way uh, through uh, the changes in the industry, which as so many media publications have, and they've invested in the brand and yeah. enabled us to build out entire new divisions. But But as you say, that innovation you can't be in our business without evolving constantly. I don't think there's any industry that's in the state of, uh, certainly no industry that's that's in a greater state of disruption than ours, uh, constant disruption. And so, yeah, it's definitely evolution all the time. So the, before before you you know your new owners, um, what kind of you talk about legacy? What was what was it like taking that on when you joined Time? You know that's a that's a big <laughs> that's a big call to get right. Well, I it was it was um, 
I, I, had, I spent the first half of my career at the Wall Street Journal, 15 years. And, um, and I was very much involved in evolution at the journal as we look to expand our content areas and how we delivered our content. Um, and then I went and did a startup. And then I was so excited to come back to time because um, to come back into legacy media. I loved, I loved the, the startups I did, but there is something so meaningful about being part of helping a great institution like this one build on its past and, and move toward its future. And I was hired as the digital editor in 2013. Uh, at the time, print and digital were pretty much totally separate at time. Digital was kind of a, the backwater. <laughs> and so a lot of what I did in my first years here was bring, bring print and digital together, bring the brand into one digital facing presence. And, and that was exciting because suddenly we had the biggest audience in our history. You know, print, print at its peak was, I don't know, five, five and a half million or something. You know, today we got 105 million people around the world who are um, not even including our studios division, you know, who are, who are our global audience. Okay. So it's, it was, it was, and continues to be uh, really an exciting journey. So, Recently, you're new on a ship. Has that meant a big changes to you? That I, you know, that idea of cutting to success in the past is that is that gone for you? I think it, it's it's you, it's part of of evolution. We we we're we're growing in some areas and we're shrinking in others. Mm. Uh, but overall, we're growing. And you know, as the industry changes, as the mediums change. We're doing less in some areas and, and more in others. Our fastest growing division today, our fastest growing business today by far is our Time Studios uh, division, which is yeah. mostly nonfiction and documentaries. We're also doing a, some scripted work and it's about 25% of our revenue today. It didn't exist three years ago. We also have Back to Health. We talked about health, a business called Time Health which is a publication that goes into doctor's offices and is focused on specific conditions. So you're in the doctor's office and uh, you're at the cardiologist and, and there's a time health guide to heart health in front of you. And that's also a very fast uh, growing business for us. Digital, obviously a huge area of focus for us. You know, print, we, we have a great magazine. We love our magazine, but it's, it's uh, fewer and fewer people are, are consuming information in, in print. We're going to be in print for a long time, delivering it to, to people who want that format. But the other areas are, are where the growth is and where we're expanding. You're also looking at e-commerce? We are. We've, we've been um, uh, in the e-commerce space actually almost as long as I've been here. We did, uh, there was a, a, an initiative across every brand at our former parent company, Time Inc., that was 24 brands from Southern Living to Real Simple, Fortunes, Sports Illustrated, Time. And uh, we were in e-commerce uh, then and through a couple of different uh, partnerships, the most recent one uh, with Taboola, um, we are expanding that as well. And I think it gets back to what you and I were talking about at the beginning of the conversation, time and the trust that people have in time. We're going to tell you everything you need to know yeah. 
about um, the headlines, but we're also going to help guide you through what to do in your personal life, with your health, with your finances, with your purchases. And I did this at the Wall Street Journal as well when I launched Personal Journal, which was, we called it business and the business of life and expanded the reach of the journal from a kind of business to business audience to a to a consumer audience in addition to the business audience. And we're that's very much what we're doing here with e-commerce and much else. If you tie all these things together, the, I guess the one thing that, that is common across all these different initiatives is just the audience, right? It's people that want trustable information, they want actionable information, they want solutions. Is that is that the way you you sat <laughs> you sat at the center of all this trying to figure out what's gonna work? Is that part of it? That's very much part of it. Very much part of it. I think we are at the center of a kind of, or, or you know, um, in the in the mix in a powerful way in in a vast, expanding, complex information ecosystem. And um, you know, we we are many things. We're we're news, yes, but we're, and this goes back a hundred years, we're information. And I think part of the power of our, you asked about secret sauce and trust we talked about, but uh, there are two other key parts to it. You know, one is, you know, there are a lot of publications that are specifically about business or specifically about health or specifically about entertainment in Hollywood. We are about everything. We are a guide. We're a trusted guide to the world around us and, and to events as they unfold. And I think that's, you know, we do these incredible events now. We talked about the studios business. We talked about Time Health. We haven't talked about our global events. That when we were at Time Inc., we did kind of one, one event a year, our Time 100 gala today. And this is really an area where our owners have encouraged us to grow and expand. We do events all over the world. We were just in... Dubai, we were in Singapore in the fall, we'll be in Israel in the spring, we were at Davos, uh, we'll be in LA on March 8th uh, for our Women of the Year event. But I think what's particularly special about our events is that we bring together people from across the globe and from across fields. You know, there are lots of events where the actors are all together, yeah. or events where the athletes are all together, or the business people are all together. Our events, because of the nature of our brand, bring together athletes and astronauts and activists and, and scientists and political leaders and business leaders, and they have the opportunity to share learnings, to forge, you know, because every problem today and mm. is, is multi-dimensional, multi-sector. And, and so I think that's also part of our special sauce that we, we have credibility in all the key areas yeah. of humanity, and then we have the power to bring those people together. Uh, the other, the other thing is is people, and I think time. Henry Luce, who was the co-founder of Time, used to say, "Time didn't invent personality journal the journalism; the Bible did." <laughs> you know, the idea being that people, 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 people are what shape the world and which and who shape history. And if you look at the cover of Time, starting in 1923. You know, it was really not until the 60s when you saw covers that weren't an image of a person or a group of people. And today, still, we think of ourselves as telling the story of the world mm -hmm. through the people who shape the world. It's about people. It's about the possibilities that individuals 
contain and, and the influence that individuals can have on the world. So I think all of that is part of, of what's that uh, mix that's gotten us where we are. I, you know, the uh, ultimate form of that is is the Person of the Year franchise, which is 95 years old and is is a major global event still today. It, get, it gets some attention, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It does, and and it's for us at time. It's exciting. It's a it's a major event, but it's also, as journalists, it's this prism, this framework for us to look at, look back at the year and who shaped it, who made it what it was, who are the people who shaped it, the influence that they exerted. Yeah, I guess it's pretty central to to well to just what you've been saying. It's that what you cover and what you talk about is led by people. So finding the person of the year is a, is absolutely logical and not yeah yeah and it's it's what we do every day but it's the person of the year is sort of the biggest expression of that yeah. daily movement you mentioned your covers uh personally i love your covers <laughs> uh you know t- a time cover is an amazing <laughs> thing one of the things i'm really interested in is the the kind of change there from print to digital and how those covers now are just still they work so well online was that a, was that a, a very deliberate process or did it just happen very much so i think of the cover today as a digital object um, obviously it's beautiful and powerful in print and we have a million four people around the world who who have it delivered the magazine with a cover delivered to their homes, but it really is a digital object, and it's it is exhilarating, you know, when we when we are on the right topic at the right moment um, to see how it how it travels the globe digitally. I think about uh, I mean, we did a, a Serena Williams cover this summer when she retired, had a, just traveled so powerfully around the world. We've done a couple of Ukraine covers. Um, we worked with the artist JR to do something about the resilience of Ukraine, mm. incredible image uh, that that uh, traveled the globe. And um, and another, you know, quoting a speech of Zelensky's early in the conflict and just amazing to see it, the impact it has digitally. I agree with you. I think for me, the defining, the defining aspect of the Trump era has got to be Times covers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it was, it was, um, our creative director, DW Pine, yeah. um, is the expert, um, in this, in this, I think it's just a subject, but absolutely nailed it every time. <laughs> But uh, yeah, I think, you know, it was a Trump uh, rewrote the rules of the presidency and um, and DW and his team rewrote the rules of the time cover. Um, Although Trump is not the most uh, frequent uh, uh, presence on the cover uh, in terms of U.S. presidents, Nixon. Oh, really? Nixon still holds the record. if you're into if you're into cover trivia, I did not know that. Um, I've got one other question just to ask you. Um, go, if we can go back to Benioffs, would you advise any magazine publisher to find themselves a, a a rich benefactor? Is that do you think that has made a huge difference to what you can do? I think there are a lot of models today. You know, the old model. Well, I mean, in truth. You look at media moguls through history, and and yeah. you know whether it's Hearst or Pulitzer, that's always been present. But you know we are as as we uh, discussed a 
business and industry and extraordinary transformation. And I think the hardest model today because of that is being part of a public company that's operates on a quarter to quarter Mm. basis, which, you know, we were at Time Inc., Time Warner, at AOL Time Warner before my time. (laughs) And, um, And I think what you're seeing now is that this is a business that to succeed requires patience, experimentation, investment. And so part of that is the trend of individual owners with the means um, to be patient and the means to invest. Mm -hmm. But there are also amazing other models. I'm on the board of the Daily Memphian, my hometown, Mm -hmm. um, a fantastic uh, nonprofit uh, that is both philanthropically and subscriber supported and and a you know a, a different model the, the ProPublica founded by my longtime um, boss and mentor Paul Steiger, mm. a nonprofit model, the Texas Tribune here in the U.S. Um, incredibly successful. So I think there's we're in a period of experimentation and um, and that'll continue for a while. I'm not going to ask you about the next hundred years, but you're confident for maybe the next ten years. <laughs> I think. Uh, I have absolutely no doubt that uh, somebody will be celebrating the 200th anniversary of time. It won't be Excellent. me, um, but um, I feel I feel really really good. Time will look different in 2033 than it does today, but it looks very different than it did when I started in 2013. I think in some ways it's changed more in the last 10 years than in the previous Mm, 50. And I imagine that will accelerate. Fantastic. We always close by asking our guests for a media recommendation, something that you've enjoyed. What would you recommend to our listeners? Well, since your last question was future oriented, I'll recommend something future oriented, which is that my colleague, um, Simon Schuster, who born in Russia, grew up in the U.S., has been covering Ukraine and and the region, that region, um, since here, since 2014 and uh, elsewhere before that, uh, has probably spent more time with Zelensky than any, certainly any U.S. journalist. He wrote our Person of the Year package and has led our coverage of this world crisis. And he's uh, written a book about Zelensky, a biography of Zelensky, and uh, and I've read parts of it, and it's outstanding, and he's outstanding, and so it's a pre-order, but but it's a great, it'll be a great read. It's a proper inside track recommendation. <laughs> it's an inside track recommendation. If you are a publisher with a newsletter, you should consider entering our publisher newsletter awards. It's our first year doing them and they are now open for entries. You can go and get your entry pack at publishernewsletters.com. And while you're visiting websites, go to voices.medium where you can find a link to our Ko-Fi page. We really do appreciate it if you kick in any money to help support the podcast, the newsletter. And speaking of the newsletter, we condense all the news of the previous day into four bite-sized chunks so you can start the day afresh with everything you need to know about media. But for this week, that's it. This probably wasn't a typical episode of the Media Voices podcast. We don't generally talk about politics. This, yeah, despite, politics and yeah, despite what it sounds like, we do take we do typically try to stay away from it. We do. We try and focus on things that make you better at your job, not things, not that, things that make you your mad. soul to leave your body. <laughs> 
So next week, we will be back with some much more practical conversation. Promise. It depends what else what Matt Hancock said this week. (laughs) That's true. But until then, thank you very much for listening and bye-bye.